Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and as usual, thank you very much for listening. We appreciate your time. And I wonder if I could get your help with one other thing. You know, Kirk and I are independent podcasters. We don't belong to a network or have a budget for marketing, and we kind of depend on word of mouth and ratings and reviews and recommendations. Now, it's not that we're fishing for compliments. We are already well gratified seeing uh, the audience growth week after week. But what will really help us out is if you could take a moment to rate the show or jot down a few thoughts in a review or, or give us a recommendation if your podcast software has a feature like that. Future listeners, we'll salute you. And of course, we thank you. All right. This is episode number 45 of The Next Track, and we are happy to have back our friend and regular guest, Andy Doe. Andy, as always, good to see you. Hi. Thanks for having me back on the show. Uh, before we go on, I would really, really like to do a little correction over something I said about the loudness button last time I was on the show. Sure, by all means. So the way the loudness button works is it slightly boosts the high frequencies and low frequencies so that it makes the music you're listening to sound more like it was loud, even when it's quiet. And when we talked about this before, I said this was because your your speakers have a, a physical limitation that means that they they don't respond so well to those frequencies when when they're quiet but in fact that's not strictly true it's really your ears that don't respond so well at those quiet volumes and so it makes it easier for you to hear these frequencies if you hit the the loudness button uh, but I wanted to get that straight before we uh, go on with the show. And that was episode number 41, which is called Whatever Became of EQ, where Andy talked about equalization. There will be a link in the show notes. If you haven't heard the show, actually, you'll find it very interesting. So in this week's episode, we wanted to have another one of our Ask Andy segments, where we've gotten a number of questions from our listeners. And we're going to look at two questions this week. The first comes from a listener who asks us about the longevity of audio components. He's wondering if his speakers, headphones, amplifier, DAC, equalizer, question mark, and other components degrade over time compared to their performance on the day that he brought them home. And he's also curious about what rate the new version of each of these components is improved. So in other words, if you've got an amp from 2000 and it works fine, do you need to spend money on a new one now, nearly 20 years later? If you have 10 or 20 year old speakers, do you need to replace them? Okay, so this is a really, really interesting question. And we could certainly do an entire show about this, but I'll, I'll do my best to be brief. All electronic equipment degrades over time to some extent, and there are a number of culprits for this. The big one is that capacitors don't have eternal life. What happens is that the electrolyte inside the capacitors evaporates, and it means that the capacitors just don't work as well as they get old. So it is possible to replace the capacitors in a piece of equipment. If you, if you turn on an old amplifier, you may find that it doesn't sound like it used to. And if you can still find an electrical repair shop, it's a relatively straightforward thing for them to replace those capacitors. And that should make that piece of equipment sound almost as good as new. The other thing that commonly degrades in amplifiers and separates units is the potentiometers, the working parts behind each of the knobs on the front. It used to be that these, these were made with a carbon track, and as that carbon track wore out, they would, you would get a crackling sound as you, as you adjust the knob. In really old equipment, they use instead a, a wire-wound resistor, and as that wire corrodes, you can get... a a crackly sound as uh, as you adjust the knob. And 
sometimes with the really old ones you can improve this just by scrubbing them backwards and forwards but that can also completely kill that component so the way to repair that is again to replace those individual components and if you can find somebody these days who repairs stuff then again that's a relatively straightforward thing to do okay so i had never heard of this before and you start talking about capacitors losing electrolytes and i'm thinking about unidirectional cables and things like this this sounds a little bit suspicious well at the end of the day these are these are physical objects and while we we tend to think of solid state electronics as being entirely static and inert there are still physical processes that happen here over time where there are contacts they can corrode which is why nowadays gold is very commonly used for electrical contact surfaces that that need to make and break because because it doesn't corrode in normal use capacitors will seem like they are inert objects that last forever but it is possible for them to reach the end of their their useful life and anyone anyone who's old enough to remember equipment with with valves in it valves in the uk tubes in the us right these vacuum tubes are a thing like a light bulb that needs to be replaced when it stops working and anybody who remembers those days will will find it less of a conceptual jump that uh, that a capacitor might might also reach the end of its its useful life when i was growing up there was a store across the street that sold some sort of electrical parts, and maybe it was like plugs and light bulbs, and they had one of those tube testing machines. So you would take the tubes out of your radio or TV, you'd stick them in the machine, and the machine would tell you if you need to replace them. Yeah, I remember we would make regular pilgrimages to our uh, local Radio Shack store with a bag full of tubes. They'd have a tube tester there. And we did it not only for our hi-fi stuff, but we had guitar amps that used tubes, and uh, somebody must have read a tip in Guitar Player magazine or something that said fresh tubes would improve your sound. And of course, I'm sure there was probably a camp that preferred the opposite, you know, old tubes or warmer or something. But also, speaking of old school, I recently had the pots on my 70s-era Samsung stereo amp cleaned up, or a couple of them replaced, too, by a guy I found locally. And if we're going to uh, get really, really old school about this, for those of you who remember the days before vacuum tubes, the needle on your Victrola will wear out extremely quickly and will, if not kept sharp, will damage the disc. And so it's important that you replace that every few times. If you have a valuable disc, always use a brand new needle in it. And uh, over time, the diaphragm as well can can lose its elasticity and uh, and springiness. And so it is possible to have the diaphragm in your, in your wind-up gramophone replaced. And that can have a, a big impact on the quality of the sound that comes out of it. Although, if you are a, uh, a serious audiophile, maybe a wind-up record player isn't the way to go. Ladies and gentlemen, we are currently experiencing dry British humor. So you, you talk about capacitors. Is that the only electrical component that's going to age? I mean, resistors, they're spending all their time resisting. Don't they get <laughs> tired? Well, they do get warm. And uh, for, the, for the most part, the electrical properties of a of a resistor remain fairly constant over time if it is a large wire wound resistor it, it is possible that that stuff can go wrong with that the thing you want to watch for with really old equipment is that if it has been mistreated in any way if it's been run extremely hot then it's more likely that components in it will have been damaged and uh, again that the thing that's most likely to happen there is that the 
the capacitors will need replacing, but it's possible that transistors and resistors could, could also be damaged there. This is less likely to be an issue with a more modern solid-state electronics, but we are talking about old stuff here. Yeah, we are. One thing that I've seen to be problematic more often than anything else is the power supply unit. Right, and mercifully, it's relatively straightforward to replace a power supply with with units that are available at extremely low cost from from online retailers. Okay, what about speakers now? I have a, an anecdote. I bought a pair of Wharfdale diamond speakers in the mid-1980s when I was living in Paris. And at some point before I left France, I gave them to my son. So these speakers are now 30 years old. And a couple of years ago, he came to visit me and I had newer speakers on my desk in my office. And my son said to me, wow, they sound so bright. And I realized that, well, yeah, speakers do lose the high end over time, don't they? Well, all sorts of things can happen to a, a loudspeaker over time. And uh, this is particularly true with the older speakers that use some quite porous materials in, in them. If the cones are made out of paper, then the same things are going to happen to that paper as happens to any other piece of paper in, in your house. And it is not going to, it's not going to bend or respond to physical stimuli in the same way that it, it did when it was new. So you're talking about the paper cones or, and, and tweeters. Obviously, they have different types of cones or membranes or whatever they are. But a lot of people say that you need to burn in speakers. Is this true? And if so, how long do you need to burn them in to make them sound the way they should sound? Well, this is a really interesting question, and it comes up a lot. The important thing to remember about a loudspeaker is that this is an expensive and sensitive piece of equipment which should have been built and tested to within very, very fine tolerances. And if its response was going to change after it had been used for an hour, 10 hours, 100 hours, then they should have done that before they sold it to you. Because until it's been burnt in, if it needs to be burnt in, then there is, there is no way that the people who've sold it to you, the people who've made it, have the slightest idea of whether or not this particular speaker is working within the tolerances that, that it's supposed to. But if I buy new shoes, I have to break them in. <laughs> Yes, but I can't break your shoes in for you. Whereas your your speakers don't need to be broken in to your feet or your room or your taste in music. Your speakers need to be to be broken in until they work like they are supposed to. And they're supposed to behave in an extremely consistent fashion. And so all quality loudspeakers, if they needed any breaking in, would have been broken in before you took them home. And the reason that people tell you that speakers need to be broken in is because this gives those selling snake oil hi-fi gear the opportunity to tell you that the $20,000 speakers they just sold you have a good reason to sound no better than your old speakers when you first install them. Plus, after you've listened to them for a couple of weeks, they become familiar and they sound good. Absolutely. Once we've got used to them, it's much harder to take them back because we 
put books on top of them. We've got used to them. We've lost the receipt. And we've forgotten what the old ones sounded like. And as far as we're concerned, we pay $20,000 for them. They, they must be awesome. In truth, in a home environment, there's, there's no sense in spending anything like that quantity of money on a, on a set of speakers. And actually, speakers are one of those components which have improved a huge amount over the 30 years since your your son's wharfdales were first made. Usually the, the cones are no longer made out of paper, they're made out of composite materials which are much more stable over time and should should last for longer without changing their, their behaviour. Um, our understanding of acoustics has improved a great deal. In the case of studio monitors, it's much more common now to have active monitors which have amplifiers and crossovers that are matched perfectly to the the things that they're driving so that there's much less fiddling around and setting up to do to get them to sound exactly right. I, I get the feeling that good low-end audio equipment, and I mean separates, I don't mean all-in-one systems, that good low-end audio equipment today sounds as good as high-end audio equipment from the 70s or the 80s. This is just a gut feeling, but the last time I bought new speakers or a new amplifier and, and I plugged this stuff in, it, it kind of makes me remember that guy who had the acoustically treated basement in the late 1970s with that easy chair directly in the center of the speaker position. And it kind of reminds me how good it sounded then. Am I wrong? Is it just that I'm getting old and not remembering it? Or do I want to think it sounds that good now? There's certainly a lot of extremely good reasonably priced audio equipment available today. There is also a lot of rubbish on the market. And it's it's one of those things that, that is, a, is a product of market forces. Some people are buying things based on the way they sound. Some people are buying things based on the features that they have. And so the manufacturers do have an incentive to spend money on pointless features rather than quality components at some segments in the market. But if you're buying a relatively simple feature light piece of equipment today, the, the chances are that it, it will sound better than the equivalently priced feature light audio product of 20 or 30 years ago. Because we've just got better at this stuff in the same way as we've got better at making just about everything else. So to, to sum up with the listener's question, assuming you can't find someone to replace capacitors, which probably isn't that simple, when should you replace an amplifier? When should you replace speakers? The, uh, the answer to this is, is the same as the answer to almost all hi-fi questions, which is that it, it depends what it sounds like. But you don't know what it sounds like anymore. So, so with those Wharfdale diamonds over the years, I didn't notice that the high end was slowly fading away. When you're familiar with an amplifier that you've had for 10 years, you don't notice that it may not sound as good as it originally did because your capacitors are leaking electrolytes. Right. So if you have speakers that are 30 years old, if you have an amplifier that's 20 years old, if you're starting to wonder if, if these things are not sounding as good as they once did, then the way to check is with the blindest A-B test that you can construct. And, and you, you, need to, you need to listen to them in the same place at the same time as something else. Now, you can, you can assume for the most part that the difference between speakers is much bigger than the difference between amplifiers. That the, the majority of, for, for the, the sort of differences we're, we're talking about here, the, 
majority of amplifiers will, will sound the same. So it would be okay to set up two amplifiers and two sets of speakers to test the, the speakers. Um, it would be preferable to use two amplifiers rather than have a 10-minute gap while you rewire the second set of speakers into the, the same amp. Well, the, the easiest way would be if you've got an amplifier that has two speaker zones. You can plug in the two sets of speakers and switch them, and that way you're guaranteed to have the right volume between uh, each of the tests. Right, and if your speakers are getting old, then it's quite likely they'll sound a bit stuffy. And it may be that the thing to do is to replace them. It may be that actually the reason your hi-fi doesn't sound as good as it did when you installed it is because since you installed it, the speakers got straightened up on the bookcase so that they didn't take up so much space and the stuff jammed in around them now when there wasn't. And so you you got to make sure that you've it's not it's not environmental changes that have made this sound sound worse over time and you've got to give your old kit a fair chance or changes to your hearing as you age. Absolutely. Now if if you will definitely lose high frequencies from your hearing over time and and keeping that in mind the older you get the less rational justification there is for spending silly amounts of money to beautifully recreate high frequencies. And uh, if your awesome perception of recorded audio is important to your self-esteem, then perhaps it's, it's, it's sensible to allow this to become a nostalgic sense that uh, I, I had golden ears. And, and maybe just turn that treble dial a little bit more. Yeah, totally. Just turn it up a bit. My trouble controls go to 11. <laughs> <laughs> so the other question we wanted to discuss today addresses this question of setting up speakers. So I mentioned that guy in the late 70s who had the acoustically treated basement and he had the big speakers and they were perfectly towed in, pointing to the easy chair. And he would sit there in this one spot, almost frozen, to make sure that his ears didn't drift too much in one direction or the other, to be in the absolute perfect sweet spot for his audio. He used some chemical enhancement to make sure that the sweet spot was even sweeter. But he would sit there for very long time, very long periods of time and listen to music like that. It was kind of strange. So we got a question from a listener asking about speaker placement. And, and he asked in particular something about the master set system developed by John Hunter of Sumiko Importers. Now, I've looked this up and there's a PDF that explains how to do this. We'll link in the show notes that you set up one speaker that's sort of your anchor and then you move the other one around. I wonder how valid this is. Now, note that he's saying that you set this up on the long side of a rectangular room. So my office, where I'm recording this and where I do listen to music, I wouldn't be able to do this. It's a square office, and it's I'm looking at a corner. And I'll explain my speaker setup after we finish this, because I have an interesting way of doing it. Have you ever heard of this speaker setup, Andy? And what sort of suggestions do you have for setting up speakers to get that perfect sweet spot? Okay, so I'd never heard of the, uh, the master set system. Uh, and it was really, really interesting to read this, this document. If you're a really reductionist explanation of this system is that you move one speaker around until it sounds good. And then you move the other speaker around until it matches. When you put it like that, it's not an insane thing to do at all. Um, it's it's an empirical system. You fiddle with it until it sounds good in that actual room that you're listening to it in. But 
one thing that the person says here is that the music will sound the same from any seat in the listening room. Now, we know that there is a sweet spot in between speakers, and generally speakers are towed in, so pointing toward that sweet spot. I can't see how the music will sound the same from any seat in the listening room. Right, and this is where the, uh, the, the claims in this document get a little sketchy. Um, when you create a stereo image on a recording, you use a variety of different techniques to achieve this. If it's a pop record that has been recorded with each individual instrument on its own, in a room, on its own, with one microphone, then typically you'll position them in the, in the mix by panning them from left and right. And this is, this is a, a volume control. You have it louder in one speaker than, than in another. But if you're making an acoustic recording, then there'll be lots of other differences between the sound coming out of each each speaker because there'll be timing differences from whether the sound from objects on the left reach the, the mics on the left versus the mics on the right. You'll also have differences in the quantity of direct and reflected sound depending on how far the instrument or the, the vocalist was from the the collection of microphones in in the room and you'll also have the the ambience in in the room that's captured and is timed differently out of out of each speaker in the final mix and the positioning of of all of these things is is done while listening to the music in a traditional triangular speaker setup and if you follow this 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 master set system and you use one pop song as the only reference for setting up your your system then you could end up with your system set up in a fairly odd way and in a way that bears no relation to the the system that was used when the acoustic recordings were were mixed and so it's conceivable to me that this would end up with something that sounded good for some pop music, but for anything that's been recorded acoustically, for anything that has any kind of complex left-right stereo imaging, it's likely that this is going to cause problems and it's certainly not going to live up to the promise that you will get exactly the same stereo image from anywhere in the room. That's nonsense and it's, it's not going to work. It's a good idea, of course, when you're setting up your speakers to listen to something, try moving them, listen again, see what sounds better, see what sounds worse. But it would definitely, if you're going to do that, be sensible to listen to a variety of music. Right. Because if you do all of this just listening to the bass line of one song, then you're going to get surprises down the road. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is that since music is recorded, produced, engineered, mixed and mastered with the goal of us listening to speakers in a sort of equilateral triangle, that that is the way we should be listening to it. I think broadly it makes sense to listen to music on a system that is as close as possible to the situation in which a recording engineer would listen to it. Um, people sometimes say that studio monitors are unnecessarily harsh, that if you use studio equipment to listen to stuff back, it will sound somehow cold or lifeless or will expose problems that, that it needn't expose. But I, I think that's, that's kind of woolly thinking. The goal of equipment designed for recording studios is... To be as transparent as possible. 
Absolutely, it should be transparent. And and, and if you're going to listen on equipment that is going to sound in some way different to what the recording engineer anticipated, then that nobody has had any direct creative control over those aspects of the sound because it may very well be that the the artists didn't want it to sound a little bit warmer in the mid-range and uh, that it it is an insane adjustment to assume that that's going to sound good across every piece of music that you listen to but you know what if if that's what you like then then do that but you're going to get weird surprises. So I, I said earlier, I wanted to mention how I've got my speakers set up in my office. So I'm sitting at my desk and I'm looking at a corner of my office. And basically there's a sort of equilateral triangle between the two walls and my desk. Since I listen to music while I'm working quite often, I have two bookshelf speakers on stands left and right. And they're towed in at the right angle for what some people call near field listening. But as you can both see, I've got a comfy chair behind me and I often sit there and listen to music and read. And that means that the stereo imaging isn't quite separated, right? Because of the distance, it's about, it's about 10 feet from the speakers to the chair. And so I'm not getting that full stereo effect. So what I did a couple of weeks ago is I took another set of speakers I have, actually a, a better set of speakers, larger, and I put them further to the sides of each of the speakers. So they make a sort of equilateral triangle with the comfy chair. Now I have a two zone, a two speaker zone amplifier. And what I do is I leave both zones on, whether I'm at my desk or sitting back there. So if I'm at my desk, I get the sound coming from the speakers on my desk. Plus I get this sort of ambient sound coming, reflecting off the walls behind me that has more of a separation. And if I'm sitting in the comfy chair, I get the larger speakers feeding most of the sound, plus I get the two smaller speakers adding sound a little bit more toward the center. Now, it's probably not ideal when I'm further away to have that reinforcement, but when I am sitting at the desk, that extra sound, it's not like a surround sound, but it does add a bit more meat to the sound when I'm listening to music. Right, you're probably getting more bass from those larger speakers that are further apart, which is, which is a big part of what will make it sound meatier than if you sat at your desk and just listened to the small speakers. Now, the one thing that slightly concerns me about your setup is that your comfy chair in the corner is quite far into the corner. And, and this, this corner behind you is acoustically a little bit more problematic than the corner that you're, you're facing. Now, I, I, don't know, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a radar reflector that boats carry. A, a radar reflector is a device that's made up out of interlocking metal sheets that is designed to make a, a boat seem bigger on a radar screen. And what it does is it reflects radar waves back in the direction that they came in. And the, the shape of this is effectively exposes the, the cut off corners of cubes to the direction that the radar might be coming from. And, and what this does is that any wave entering one of these corners will bounce back in exactly the direction that it came from, regardless of the angle that it, it hits the corner. And if you put your listening position in a corner like this, without anything on the walls to absorb the sound, then you are at risk from getting an, an awful lot of reflection that could cause odd things to happen. And now your office is carpeted, which is a big help. You're not getting this from the floor. You've got pictures on the walls, which again will help. The cork board that I can see in the corner will be uh, 
will be a big benefit. But uh, putting your listening position diagonally across the room in a corner like this is uh, is a potential source of, pro of trouble. And something you can do to break up reflections from, from the walls is, is always helpful. Bookshelves are good for this, so long as you're not OCD about lining all your books up. Well, there is a bookshelf, if you can see it over there, just behind the chair. It's an IKEA unit with cubes, and I'd actually be more worried about that unit and its resonance because it's a sort of open cube type thing. Actually, the uh, the biggest saving grace of this toll system is that Kirk's chair looks like he stole it from Dr. Evil. And uh, something that wraps around your head and uh, protects you from from uh, the reflected sound from behind you will have a big effect improving the sound. It, it is a stressless chair with a large um, head rest behind it. Don't you have an Eames chair, Andy? It's similar to that. Yeah, the Eames chair is, is again, fairly good at preventing you from getting a lot of a lot of reflections from behind. So basically sitting in a chair with a headrest can resolve a lot of problems because it blocks the sound coming in from behind me? You may get some reflections from it as well. It depends on the the absorptive qualities of the, uh, the materials that the, the chair is made of. Ideally, you'd be sitting with your head above the back of the chair and with a large absorbent surface some distance behind you so that you were less likely to have high frequencies bouncing straight back in your ears. But it's 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 better than nothing. All right. Our guest has been Andy Doe. This is one quick half hour. Thanks again, Andy, for joining us for another Ask Andy episode. Thank you for having me on the show. And now Kirk and I will present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you listening to? So my next track this week is not music. It's actually a TV series. And you turned me on to it, Doug. You mentioned this a few weeks ago. You had been watching it on your local public TV station. It's a documentary called Sound Breaking, Stories from the Cutting Edge of Recorded Music. And I've watched five of the eight episodes so far. It starts out talking about George Martin and the Beatles and the Art of Recording, which is the name of the first episode. And it looks at the recording studio and how it works. And then there are episodes about microphones and techniques and instruments and all that. And then there's an episode called Going Electric, which is basically about the change from acoustic to electric instruments. But it sort of switches away from recorded music at this point and goes a lot into performance. The, the fifth episode is the last one I've seen so far called Four on the Floor, which... I'm thinking four on the floor. What is this about? It's about a car with a stick shift. It's actually about dancing and things and disco music. So it it's a pretty uneven documentary series, but I find a lot of the stuff in it to be really interesting. And I think a lot of our listeners will appreciate this because it does talk about recording and performance. And, and, and I think one of the, the more poignant moments is when Rick Rubin, the founder of Def Jam Recordings, talks about how he doesn't really care about genre. And he went back and he pulled Johnny Cash out of a, a pretty poor period of his life and recorded on his label that he called American Records, recorded, I think, five albums with Johnny Cash. And there are some films where he's just in a living room and Johnny Cash is there with the guitar and, and, and he's singing in front of a microphone and Rick Rubin's sitting on the couch next to him. And if you haven't heard these Johnny Cash records, they are really extraordinary. It's, 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 Johnny Cash just distilled his entire career into this stuff that he did at the end. To get back to the series, it talks about music, about music creation, recording, and I think a lot of people will find this interesting. What about you, Doug? What are you listening to this week? Well, Chuck Berry passed away last week, but I'm not picking a Chuck Berry album. I'm picking the Rolling Stones 12 by 5 because the first track on that album is 
the Chuck Berry song Around and Around, which has got some cool guitar changes and licks in it. It's a great song for a lot of reasons, but it's also a great example of how Keith Richards is probably one of the finest interpreters of Chuck Berry. I think I think Keith has been able to extract more rock and roll from any Chuck Berry song than even Chuck himself. You know, kind of like what Eric Clapton is to Robert Johnson, Keith Richards is to Chuck Berry. Um, they have performed together a few times and famously squabbled about details, which, which only makes their relationship more epic. But anyway, getting back to 12 by 5, it's the Stones' second American album. It's culled together from a UK five-song EP called 5 by 5, five songs by five guys, padded with uh, singles they had already released in the United States. 12 by 5 is 50% covers like Under the Boardwalk, Confessing the Blues, It's All Over Now, Around and Around, I already mentioned, and 50% fair to middling early Stones compositions, which means they're not so great. But anyway, I've listened to both the mono and stereo versions of this album, and hands down, the mono version is far superior. So if you get a chance, check it out. The Rolling Stones, 12 by 5, it's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>